I um, am excited about what we're going to be doing today, but as a result of wanting to take as much time as we can for our sharing in uh, our worship of our great God and Lord together, uh, they're only going to let me talk for about 25 minutes. Ron has promised that if I go any beyond that because he's skeptical of my ability to keep things to that short, he's going to, if you notice Ron walking up, put his arm around me and say, well, thank you very much, Chris. You'll know that I've overstepped my time. Now, we're going to be looking this morning at Psalm 8. We're not going to do a, a particularly thorough exposition because we're going to want to move fairly quickly. Uh, we'll take a step back and look at the major themes and allow those themes to draw us into worship. But before we uh, get into our stepping back and looking at the themes, there's one detail I thought I would uh, share with you I think you might find interesting. Look at the superscription of Psalm 8. It's a little thing written right above it. Now, if you've got a New American Standard, there's a line first, the glory, or the Lord's glory and man's dignity. That is just an editorial comment, a paragraph title. But what below that is actually part of the psalm. This comes from ancient time. For the choir director on the Giddeth, a psalm of David. See, this psalm was written to be played, or to be sung, accompanied by a Giddeth. Now, what is a Giddeth? The word giddeth literally means a wine press. And what a wine press was, was this large bowl, um, either wooden or stone, with a hole in the middle. And the, wine, the, the grapes were crushed around in the bowl and the, and the juices would run down into the hole and be collected. Well, what some scholars believe is that what's being referred to here is a, a stringed instrument with a large bowl with a hole in the middle. What in Greek culture became known as the cathara, what evolved into the Spanish guitarra, which is uh, the ancestor of our modern guitar. So, in all likelihood, at least in some possibility, <laughs> this psalm may have been written to be accompanied by the great-granddaddy of our modern guitars. You see, there's precedent for putting psalms to guitar music. Well, enough of uh, interesting Bible facts. Let's look at Psalm 1 and 2, or Psalm 8, verses 1 and 2. Starts with, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth, who has displayed thy splendor above the heavens. From the mouths of infants and nursing babes thou hast established strength because of thine adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. Starts off with the address. This is addressed to the Lord, our Lord. Now, there's two different words for Lord being used here. Two different words that have been translated into the word Lord. If you'll notice, the first one is in all capital letters. The second one, just the first letter, is capitalized. Well, that, that, that Lord with all capital letters is actually the Tetragrammaton, the name for God, Yahweh. You see, from ancient times, the, the Jews would never write out Yahweh. They'd never write out God's name. And if they ever translated it into another language, they would always uh, substitute the word Lord for God's name because they were afraid that someone would inadvertently read the Lord's name in such a way that took that name in vain. Modern translators, out of respect for God, have kept to that convention, that tradition. So whenever you see Lord in all capital letters, it's actually... Yahweh. What David is saying here is Yahweh our Lord. See, Yahweh is the great God of the universe. 
the fearful, powerful God who created all things. He's the God who led his people out of Egypt and destroyed any army that opposed them. Then David brings it personal. He sees this great God up there, this God of power, but he says, Our Lord. This contrast between the God of the universe, the God who is above all, and the God who is related to us, who relates to us, who cares about us, is is really the dominant uh, literary device for the whole psalm. We'll see that contrast back and forth over and over again. But this is also the beginning place of worship, of realizing who it is we're dealing with, that we are dealing with God Almighty, the creator of all that is, and realizing just what our relationship with Him is, what it should be. Yahweh, our Lord, our owner, our master, the one we belong to with all that implies about the the, the privileges of belonging to Him. And all that implies about the obligation, the demand of obedience. Yahweh, our absolute Lord. said, How majestic is thy name in all the earth, who has displayed thy splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, thou hast established strength because of thine adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. So you notice that, that contrast again, talking about the God who's created and displayed His splendor above the heavens and, uh, and His majesty all over the earth. And then He zooms in to, to an infant, a nursing babe. You know, that, that, that enormous contrast really displays the, the, the greatness, the, the wonder of our God. He's the God... Uh, who out of the breath of his mouth spoke the words that caused the galaxies and the solar system to explode into being. Yet that same breath breathes life into a little baby, tenderly and without any harm. Now this is the God we serve. What he says about the earth and the heavens is first that when he looks at the earth, he sees God's majesty. His authority, His nobility, His his kingly sovereignty over all of the earth. He says, when I look around, you see God's mark of ownership everywhere if you're willing to look. That The term where He says, your name, literally that is your brand or, or your stamp of ownership. When I was a kid, my mom used to sew a label with my name on it into the back of my jacket in the vain hope that that would increase the chances of recovering that jacket when I left it somewhere. And what David is saying is that if you look around, you see God's label all over creation. Just look at it and wonder. Be amazed at the, at the, the powerful, the intelligent the, the, the sublime, the subtle God who created all of this. Then he says, God's splendor is displayed above the heavens. Splendor is another word for glory. God's magnificent character, his excellent personality. It's what we're talking about when we talk about glory. His personality is clear by looking at what he created. We see his intelligence. We see his goodness. We see his creativity. 
We see His delight in, in beauty. We see His generosity. When we look at the things that He has made. Again, it's written all over creation. Just look around and be overwhelmed by the awesome God that we serve. But there's something that's even more awesome in David's eyes. Something that really excites him even more than seeing God's splendor, God's glory, God's majesty in creation. That's verse 2, where he said, From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. An infant here is, is a very small child, just learning to talk, yet still totally dependent, still nursing. And he says that God uses these to silence his, his enemies, those who are fighting back against God. Well, how does he do that? Well, before we look at how it is, let's look at how it isn't. It isn't because these little children are so strong. They're weak. They're vulnerable. It's not because they're so smart and well-educated. They are ignorant. They, they, they are, they're naive. You know, it isn't because they are such excellent arguers. They can back anybody into a corner using their logic and their reason. Now, again, they're very simple. It's not because they have power and influence. Infants are powerless in our society, in any society. See, that's not how God uses them. Well, then what is it? In Matthew 21, just after... Uh, Jesus cleansed the temple, he ran the money changers out, did all of that stuff. The chief priests came out and they were angry. They were vengeful. They came out to attack him and condemn him. But when they got out there, the children all around were singing and shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. And the priests were silenced. You see, it's, it's the, the faith the open, honest, unashamed praise of these little ones that silences the hard-hearted. It's not their intelligence. It's not their power. It's not their, their, their persuasiveness. It's their trust, simple and complete. It's their dependence, glad, confident. It's their praise, open and honest, direct, these are the things that God uses. And this display of God's glory really just, uh, it just blows David's mind. This awesome God we serve, He can use anyone. He is so wise, so skillful, so subtle, so great, yet so powerful that really it is, it is His intelligence, His wisdom, His power, His strength. That, that's all that's needed. You know, you aren't smart. Well, neither is an infant. You don't talk so good. Neither does an infant. You don't know all the answers. Neither does an infant. You're not powerful or influential so that people sit up and take notice at your words. Neither is an infant. But God is so awesomely powerful, so awesomely skillful, He can use you. He can silence His enemies using your mouth. That's the God we serve. Well, how's He going to do that? By you grabbing all of the, the power and, and influence that you can get so that you wield the largest political club? Or is it going to be by you becoming the best arguer that ever lived? No. 
Again, it's going to be your trust. Simple and complete. It's going to be your dependence on Him. Glad and confident. It's going to be your praise of His name. Open, honest, direct. See, and with these things as the focus, God may give you power and influence. He may gift you in in, in persuasion. Or on the other hand, He may leave you looking like a weak fool. But the heart of it is your simple love for God and His awesome ability to use even you, even me. That's the God we serve. Verse 3 says, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou dost take thought of him, and the son of man that thou dost care for him? Yet thou hast made him a little lower than God. And dost crown him with glory and majesty. Thou dost make him to rule over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. See again that contrast? Here he is, he's, he's talking about the God of, who created the heavens. He looks up and he sees the beautiful heavens. And then he confronts the the almost incredible fact that this same God cares about humans. The God who is transcendent is imminent. The God who is high above is also close at hand. David looks at the heavens, he looks at the moon and the stars, and he sees those things are huge. They're vast. They're permanent. They're important. They affect everything. They affect the tides and the seasons. They're enormously important. And he looks over at man. Tiny, weak, frail, mortal, unimportant. And he says, how is it, God, that you care, that you pay attention to humans? I mean, why do you bother? But the startling fact is that God does He cares a whole lot, and he's done some pretty remarkable things for us. David starts with a comparison that seems, uh, I think, almost comical in in its discrepancy. He says, Thou hast created him, or hast made him, a little lower than God. I say, right. That's like comparing the ocean to my bathtub and saying, The ocean is a little bit bigger. Or, Or saying the sawtooths are a little bit more grand, more majestic than my daughter Jessica's sand pile. Now, it's, it's absurd. It's an absurd comparison. And when we think of the fact that God throws the planets and the stars into space and we strain to pick up a rock. You know, God moves at the speed of thought. He can be all places at once and we plod along from here to there, slower and slower as life goes on. God knows all secrets. We strain to figure things out. And the more we learn, the more we realize how little we really know. Again, that, that comparison is absurd, that we were created a little lower than God. But it's true. You see, the fact is, we are not insignificant and temporary. As a matter of fact, we are eternal beings. Long after the last star in this galaxy burns itself out, we will be enjoying eternity with our God. 
You see, we are extremely important, extremely valuable. True, we don't have His absolute power. We don't have anything approximating His intelligence, His subtlety, His wisdom, His ability to to keep His finger on everything all at once. But we are crowned with glory and majesty. Back up in verse 1, he talked about God's majesty and His splendor, or His glory. And now he tells us that God has crowned us with this same stuff. If you remember, God's uh, splendor is another word for His glory, His excellent character. We were created to reflect His character, to love like Him, to be wise like Him to be patient like Him, to be forgiving like Him, to be kind like Him. That was what we were created to be. And in that way, we were created awesome and magnificent. But sin has distorted and twisted that glory until it's unrecognizable. It says we are have been crowned with majesty, that is sovereignty, nobility, authority to rule. See, we were created to reflect His majesty. Our authority was to be given to us by God, a sharing of His own. We were created to rule this earth with wisdom and authority as God's regents, as His stewards, And that was the plan all along. And that's what what David elaborated on in in, in verses 6 through 8, where he said, Thou dost make him rule over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. We were created to rule this earth and all of its inhabitants. But again, sin destroyed that. It caused us to forfeit that authority. Yet having a forfeit that authority and knowing deep down that that was our destiny, we try to regain it. We try to fight our way back to it. Rather than receiving majesty from the great Creator, we try to assert our own rule using violence and force. See, we try to subject all things to ourselves, by ourselves, and for ourselves. And as a result, in trying to... to, uh, assert our control over matter. We create nuclear fallout and enormous piles of garbage. In asserting our control over animals, we create endangered and extinct species. We pave and we pollute and we deplete and we destroy. Things are not as they should be. The reason for this is, again, because we want our our own glory. We're not willing to receive and to reflect God's glory. We want our own majesty, unwilling to receive and reflect God's majesty. And it's not until we come full circle in verse 9, back to the truth of verse 1, that we're in a position to again be restored to our destiny, our dignity, our glory. Verse 9 He says again, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When Yahweh becomes our Lord, our owner, our master, the one to whom we submit fully, 
The one whom we serve with no reservation. It's only when we acknowledge His majesty, His rule, that we are again crowned with glory and majesty. And this is done as we place ourselves under Jesus Christ, the one who allowed the Father to place all things under His feet and to receive from Him, from Jesus Christ, the forgiveness that He purchased that cleanses up, cleanses out those sins that have, that have caused us to forfeit all that God designed for us. And we place our lives at His disposal. And then what He starts to do is He begins again to share His glory with us. He begins to change us and to make us like Him. And we find ourselves beginning to reflect His glory as He causes us to love like He loves, to be wise like He is wise, to be patient like He is patient, to be forgiving like He forgives, to be kind like He is kind. And again, He he crowns us with majesty. We become noble again. Our relationship with creation changes. Again, we find ourselves not seeking our glory, not seeking our plans, but pursuing His glory, pursuing His purposes as His regents, as His stewards. We can no longer wantonly destroy the beauty He has created. We can't litter casually. We can't treat as unimportant the animals that He's created. Again, our goal becomes to honor and respect and appreciate His handiwork, His magnificent creation. And ultimately, we look forward to the day when, in the new heavens and the new earth, all the destruction that sin has caused on this earth will be wiped away. All the sin in our lives that caused us to forfeit our glory and our majesty and keeps us from being willing to submit to Him and receive His glory and His majesty, all that will be wiped out and we will, in partnership with Him, have dominion. Even now, we see again His glory, His majesty displayed in the works of His hands in creation. And our hearts exult as we see His mark of ownership. And even now, we see His glory, glory and majesty manifest in our own lives as He's changing us, as He called us to Himself, and then as He, by His great power, uses us, even us. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Well, we're going to right now go ahead and spend some time as a congregation to share our worship. We'll take some time just to to exalt and to share with each other things that strike us about our great Creator God, things that we see in creation that 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 cause us to exalt. And we're also going to spend some time just wondering at His love and, and calling us to Himself and in using us. There'll be a time for sharing testimonies of how God may have called you or how God, by His power, may have used you. So we're going to go ahead and do that. David's going to come up and lead us in a couple more songs. Then Ron's going to come up and share in the, uh, or lead that sharing time.